Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I'd invite you to take your copies of the scripture and open them with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. In a moment, we will be reading the first 10 verses of Matthew 28. As it happens in this calendar year, this is the 17th Lord's Day, 17th Sunday of our year. And the Heidelberg Catechism follows those Lord's Days. And on the Lord's Day 17, which is today, the question is, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? The answer is this. First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is a pledge to us of our glorious resurrection above. A good reminder of Christ's resurrection and its benefit to our lives. I had to stop by the post office this week and was talking with the lady behind the window. and It came up that I am a pastor and what church? And she said, well, I hope you're on top of your game this Sunday. <laughs> what we are about to do in reading God's word is what is our assurance, is my assurance that we are always on top of our game. <laughs> it's not because of me. It's not because of what I have to say. <laughs> in, in fact, there's one pastor who taught me we should always be praying to preach our best sermon. And I, I pray that I would preach well. But maybe I should pray that I'd preach my most mediocre sermon. <laughs> so that God's word and his power may shine forth. Not me. So, we're about to read God's word. That is the best thing that we're going to do today. <laughs> Jason read God's word. That's the best thing that we could do today. It will always tell us the truth. It always does exactly what it's supposed to do. So we can praise him that we'll be on top of our game today because we read God's word. <laughs> So would you stand with me as we read Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. 
As I finish verse 10, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say thanks be to God because we are thankful for his holy word. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we receive your word. We treasure up your commandments. Make our ears attentive to your wisdom. Incline our hearts to understanding. As we call out for insight, as we raise our voice for understanding, as we seek for it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, may you grant us to understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are events that take place in the course of human history that have such an impact upon people that it changes them. It can bring them together. It can unify them. It becomes such a life-defining moment that you remember where you were and what you were doing when you heard the news. We can think of significant events in our nation's history. For more recent events, we might think of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the assassination of JFK, the landing on the moon, the attacks of 9-11. Through all of these events, the force was so great upon many people that there was a response, a reaction that came about. I remember shortly after 9-11, reading one quote that lamented what they perceived to be a failure of lasting change upon people. The quote was something something to the effect that after 9-11, we were all on the same page for about 15 seconds. And then each of us returned to our own self-focused endeavors. The impact didn't last. The change faded away. Whatever unity there was, it was only temporary. And look at the microcosm of the church. Even after 9-11. What happened right after 9-11? Everyone was in church for a while. 
How long did that last? Not very long. Why? Why didn't it last? Why didn't people stay? Because the motivation for their coming to church was based on the wrong event. They were responding ultimately to the wrong event. These events might get you in the church, but these events don't keep you in the church. They don't make you stay at church. We as Christians are Christians because we have responded to an event. This is not just any event. It is the greatest event in the course of all of human history. There is no greater event that one can find. And the greatness of this event is shown in its lasting effect and change that it has upon us forever. That it unifies us. Brings us together with an unbreakable bond. It puts us on the same page and keeps us on the same page forever. It is why we come back Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to church. It is why we are persecuted in this world, but it is also why we are not overcome or overtaken by this world. It is why we have hope in the midst of suffering and difficulty and hardship. It's why we give ourselves to God daily as we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow the Savior who is Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest event in all of human history. Here we are, 2,000 years after the event, still celebrating, still rejoicing in it, still marveling at it. Jesus Christ has risen again from the dead. When the reality of this truth and what he accomplished through his resurrection sinks into our hearts and into our minds, we have to respond. We must respond. It's our heart's desire and longing to respond to what Jesus Christ has done. But it's how we respond that's important. It's necessary to state up front that whether people recognize it or not, everyone, everyone has responded to the resurrection in one way or another. The question for you this morning is not, have I responded to the resurrection it is, how have I responded to the resurrection? Have I responded to it rightly? The way that I should? What does your response to the resurrection look like? And let us not fall into thinking that your response to the resurrection is a one-time action. It's a continual response. Each day, moment by moment, action by action, what does your life say about how you have responded and are continuing to respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And that's what I love about Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 1 through 10, highlights responses to the event of the resurrection. And so this morning, we will look at these responses and how these responses should should shape us, and mold us. It is the truth of the resurrection that we want to work in us. These are not responses that 
somehow we can force or conjure up on our own. They are responses that flow out of what Jesus has done. The responses don't save us. Jesus saves us through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. But as our eyes are open to the truth of how Jesus has saved us, what he has saved us from, that he has saved us from God's wrath and from our sin that deserves death and from eternal punishment. And when we see what he has given to us, atonement, forgiveness, redemption, his righteousness, inheritance in the family of God and eternal life, we know we must respond Our responses don't save us, but they are an expression, an outflowing of what we believe Christ has done for us. Maybe if there was something to lament this morning, we might lament how oftentimes the church has had a small view of Christ's resurrection. What happens when the church has a small view of Christ's resurrection? Small view of the resurrection, a little view minimizing the resurrection, not seeing it in its fullness and all of its glory. What happens when we minimize the resurrection? A small view of the resurrection leads to a small response. A small view of the resurrection leads to the view of a small Savior. And a small view of the resurrection leads to fragile hope. The resurrection has to be at the center of who we are and why we come together every Sunday. When we gather together, it's because Jesus lives. It's because of the fact that not only did he die, but he rose again from the dead, miraculously, supernaturally. Inexplicable in our own finite minds. How could it be that someone lay in a tomb with no life, no heartbeat, no pulse, no brain activity, and yet then come back to life fully? His heart beats. And his heart continues to beat. And it's his heartbeat that is to make our hearts beat. What is it that makes your heart beat? Is it the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And how are you responding to the resurrection? And what does it say that you believe about Jesus, what he has done, and ultimately what you are living for? Three truths, three responses I want to draw our attention to this morning. You can find these in your bulletin if it's helpful and outline. Number one, for some, the initial events after the resurrection brought fear with great trembling. For some, the initial events of the resurrection brought fear with great trembling. After a violent heart-wrenching 
Friday, having watched their beloved Jesus die a cruel death on a cross, the innocent one having been executed, breathing his last, and then seeing Jesus removed from the tree, wrapped in a linen cloth, and laid in a new tomb in the garden, Matthew draws our attention to two women. Two women who, if we look back earlier in the text, in 27, verse 61, it says this about them. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. These two women had been there when Jesus was buried. And now, three days later, they are heading back to the tomb. Some other accounts reference that they were going back to anoint Jesus' dead, lifeless body. But here they are now in verse 1 of chapter 28. On this, the day after the Sabbath, on Sunday morning, on the first day of the week. Or maybe we could even think about it as the eighth day. They went back to see the tomb. How often do we think about this any given Sunday? Right here is why we worship on Sunday mornings, because this is when the empty tomb was found. It's when the declaration that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead was made. Do we think about that as we get up on Sunday morning, as we make our way here on Sunday morning, that we would say, we are doing all of this because of the resurrection. This has significance because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every single Sunday. And as they were going at dawn, it says that light was just beginning to break with the beginning of a new day. New life, resurrection life was dawning upon the world. This day would be, like, uh, would be unlike any other day that had ever come before it. And Matthew draws our attention to the word here, behold. What does he want us to see? Verse 2, and behold what? There was a great earthquake. This is not the first earthquake that Matthew has mentioned. It's the second earthquake. If we go back, we see the first earthquake took place when Jesus died. You can see that in verse 51 of chapter 27. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. With the death of Christ on the cross, the earth makes an announcement as with each significant event. And so now, Christ has been raised and the earth makes another announcement by quaking again with a great earthquake. An announcement for those who have ears to hear. Why was there a great earthquake in the garden on that Sunday morning? It was because with the descent of an angel there was a great earthquake. An angel of the Lord, an angel from the Lord, descended from heaven. This is no mere man. This is a heavenly angel, a messenger sent by God himself, an angel with a mission. And this event is so great and so astounding that God sent an angel from his holy abode to make this divine announcement. And it's amazing as we contrast these two earthquakes that are taking place. One earthquake that happens with the death of Christ. One earthquake that happens with the resurrection of Christ. One earthquake to announce, and it seems like everything is coming undone. 
on that darkest day, and yet with another earthquake heralding everything is going to be made right, everything is going to be made whole again. And so the angel descended from, on he from heaven, he came back and he rolled the stone away. The stone that had secured the only way in or out from that tomb. The stone that in verse 66 of chapter 27, we're told that the Roman guards went and they secured that stone, they put a seal around it. The stone was so heavy, these women, women would not have been able to lift it on their own. And then, as the angel descended, he came and he rolled back the stone. He did the most peculiar thing. What did he do? He sat on the stone. Why would the angel do that? Why is that significant? Was the angel tired? The stone was so heavy that afterwards he had to take a break and the only thing he could do was sit on the stone. I don't think that's the case. The angel sitting on that stone was a representation of the Lord's authority. When you have authority, when you showed it in these days, you sat down. And so with this angel sitting on this stone, he was saying, this stone doesn't have authority over what happens in this tomb. This stone does not have the final say of who comes in or comes out of the tomb. The Lord has authority over this stone. It was the Lord's angel, the Lord's messenger, who had been given authority to, to roll the stone away. This activity of this tomb is under the jurisdiction of the Almighty God. What he says goes in this tomb, and no one else gets to decide. Roman guards didn't have authority over that tomb. Jewish authorities didn't have authority over that tomb. Pontius Pilate didn't have authority over that tomb. God and God alone had authority over that tomb. Yet how many might even today try to decide what goes on or what went on in that tomb? Was Jesus merely revived in the coolness of the tomb? Was there some other suspicious activity, some other explanation for what happened on that Sunday? The only explanation is a supernatural explanation of what happened in that tomb on that Sunday. And this paradox is amazing. While it can only be a supernatural explanation it is also a very easy explanation to understand. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the explanation. How did Jesus resurrect from the dead? God raised him from the dead. That's Christianity 101. It was God who freed him from the pains of death because death had no power over the innocent Son of God who was slain for sinners. And then we see the appearance of this angel. An amazing appearance. The appearance of lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. It might be easy for us to imagine clothing that is white as the pure driven snow. 
it might be a little bit more difficult for us to comprehend the appearance of lightning. Was it bright? Was it flashing? Whatever the exact appearance, no doubt it was amazing. It reminds us even of when Jesus was transfigured before his three disciples. It highlights that this is a divine being that's come from before the very presence of God himself. And the whiteness of his clothing signals that we are in the last days now. That's what happens with the resurrected Christ. This is a new age. This is a new time. That's why the end of the book of Revelation, all the saints, how are they dressed? White robes. And then we come to the response. It's the response of the guards. And they teach us a very important le lesson. Many in our world would think this. Wouldn't it be great to meet an angel? Man, like, wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Like, I, I would really love to meet an angel. They have no idea what they're asking for. Some in our world have become obsessed with angels. Would it be great to meet an angel? No. It would be terrifying to meet an angel. That's what the guards experienced. Roman guards, well-seasoned fighting men. Men who have, would have seen some of the worst things imaginable in this world. Nothing could terrify them. Nothing could horrify them. Nothing could shake them. Nothing could overtake them. Yet, with the actions of these, this angel, the guards feared. They were afraid. And what was the reason to fear? They thought their greatest threat was from other men, when in reality, their greatest th threat came from God himself. They could overcome men. They could stop men. They could fight men. They could restrain men. They could control men. But they could not overcome, stop, fight, restrain, or control God. How many are still terrified by this thought today? They cannot control God. They cannot stop Him. They cannot overcome Him. They cannot thwart Him in any way. Maybe they won't even admit it. But one day it will be plain for all to see. Maybe you would think this morning you've got it under control. Would it be the truth of the resurrection that would show you that you are not in control? And coming to the realization of this truth is actually freeing. It's releasing. Because the truth is, if you think you're in control, you're not. Only God is in control. Only He can save. 
Only he can rescue you and redeem you. You cannot control the resurrection. <laughs> These Roman soldiers feared and they trembled. Interesting, this word trembled. It's the same word that's used for earthquake <laughs> there right before it. They were shaking in their boots. I find it fascinating. When Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it says there that the people of Jerusalem were trembling as Jesus came into the city. Now the Roman soldiers are trembling when it becomes known that Jesus had left the tomb. And what does it say? It says they became as dead men. It shows the extent of their response. The roles had been reversed the dead man was alive, and the Roman soldiers who were living became as dead men. It was no doubt a very real and moving response, and yet it was a response that ultimately did not change them. It did not last. Later we read that the chief priests of Israel are able to pay them off so that they spread a lie about the resurrection. How can some have such a great response, such an appropriate response, a response that shakes them to the core? It's dramatic. It looks good on the outside, yet it does not last because it is not based on true and saving faith. They fall down as dead men all the while they were failing to understand that they were spiritually dead in their hearts. Jesus came and died and rose again from the dead to save dead people. People who were dead in their sins. That's where we all begin. We all first must come to the realization that we are those dead people. The only way to be made alive is through the risen Savior. We're dead because of our sin. I was dead because of my sin until Christ saved me. Fear and trembling can look good on the outside, but that does not necessarily mean that spiritual work has been done on the inside. Think about all that the Roman soldiers had seen and experienced, and yet they still were willing to go out and tell lies about it. They would have rather propagated a lie and lived by a lie than living like the resurrection actually happened. They lived denying the resurrection even though they were, even though they were so close to it. And so we need to be warned by the Roman guards' response. You can look good on the outside, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the response is lasting, that the change has really taken place. The second response, number two, for others, the invitation and instruction after the resurrection brought fear with great joy. 
for others, the invitation and instruction after the resurrection brought fear with great joy. We turn our attention back to the two women whom the angel addresses and we find that the stone has been rolled away. Not to let Jesus escape. He was already risen. The stone was rolled back to let the first witnesses in. The women are met with these words, do not be afraid. Do not, become, do not be overcome with fear. Why? Because the angel knows they are seeking Jesus who was crucified. They are looking for a dead Jesus. They are looking for a Jesus buried in the tomb. There was instead a risen Christ they were to be looking for, to be seeking and what good news was announced to these two women. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Jesus had predicted that he was going to die and rise again from the dead, and that is exactly what he has done. Jesus has kept his word perfectly. He is trustworthy and true. And then the women are given this invitation. Come and see. Come and see the place where he once was. Come and see the place where he lay. Mary and, uh, Mary and Mary, come see the empty tomb for yourself. You are the first eyewitnesses. This is amazing because women's testimony in, the Jewish, in these Jewish days was not even permissible in a court of law. They did not value the testimony of women, yet God chose these two women to be the first eyewitnesses, the first to testify to the fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And not only are they the first to hear the good news, they're also the first to proclaim the good news. They had seen him buried in the tomb, but he was no longer there. And then they are instructed by the angel to go tell his disciples. Go tell them that Jesus has risen from the dead and that he was going before them into Galilee to meet them there. And so they are carried by the weight of this message as it has been told to them by an angel from heaven with all of his authority they were to announce what had taken place to these disciples. And so the woman left the tomb quickly. And in their departure, we see their response. What was their response? They had fear with great joy. What an odd combination of a response. Was this the same kind of fear that the guards had displayed? No, the guards feared for their lives and were paralyzed. The women feared because of the life that had been given to Jesus and so were empowered and motivated to act. This is the difference between worldly fear and godly fear. Worldly fear paralyzes you. Godly fear empowers you and brings you to action. Do you know that in your life, when you are afraid and you are paralyzed, that is not a fear from God. But when you fear and it motivates you to act, to live, 
to love. That is a godly fear. And that's the kind of fear that these women had. They feared and they were acting on that fear. They didn't run away from the event. They ran away to obey and do what they had been told. This is not the fear this world knows. It was the fear of the Lord. And they had come to understand the magnitude of the event. They had caught a glimpse of the awesomeness of the event. And so their fear was based on reverence, on wonder and deliverance, not on judgment and punishment and wrath. And so they rightly feared, but feared with great joy. Worldly fear steals our joy. It removes joy from our hearts. It suffocates our joy. But godly fear makes our joy abound. And they had joy because their Savior was alive. They had joy because their Savior had overcome death. They had joy because Jesus completed what he had promised. They had joy because redemption's work had been accomplished. Because atonement had been made. And they had joy because Jesus had been vindicated so that all their hope had been restored. What kind of hope had been given to these women? Listen to what 1 Peter says about this hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the kind of hope these women had. A living hope. Do you have a living hope? This is not a hope that you need to prop up and make look good. This is a hope that is alive because Jesus is alive. It's a joy, it's a hope that goes on living because Jesus goes on living. And the announcement of Jesus' resurrection did not bring a little bit of joy. It was not just enough joy, a stingy amount of joy. No, it was great joy, abounding joy, overflowing joy. Run as fast as you can from the tomb to tell the disciples the wonderful news joy, a joy that they could not keep to themselves, a complete joy that could not be stolen from them even while they still lived in a fallen world. How is that possible? How do we know joy? How do you know joy? Do you know joy whenever you feel it? Whenever things are going your way, whenever you are getting what you want, whenever things of this world are going according to your plan, whenever we are healthy or wealthy, how often would we build our joy on sinking sand and then wonder why we lack so much joy? But when our joy is built on the rock of the resurrection, no one and nothing is able to conquer this joy. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. 
Because the truth of the resurrection can never be changed. It can never be undone. And so our joy comes from so great a salvation that Paul says this in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you know this fear with great joy? You will if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead as these women believed, believed as they fled the tomb. But number three, the third response. Still better was the interruption by the resurrected Christ that brought worship with reassurance. Still better was the interruption by the resurrected Christ that brought worship with reassurance. Have you ever been annoyed by an interruption? Maybe you were in the middle of a task and were interrupted. Maybe you were in the middle of a sentence and were interrupted. We have to teach our children to be polite, not to interrupt someone else. If you're a parent, you know this interruption often by the kids who come to you and they say, Dad, 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 Dad. But now we find the best kind of interruption. The risen Christ interrupted these two women as they were running to tell the disciples that he had risen. It was a very welcomed interruption. And isn't this what we know Christ to do so wonderfully? He interrupts at just the right time. With the intent to make himself known. It's just how he works. When we are doing whatever it is that we might be doing, whether as important as these two women who were charged with the task of proclaiming the good news, or whether we are doing that which would oppose the work of Christ as Saul was doing when he was on the road to Damascus, when Jesus interrupts, he does so with purpose. He does so with great weight and authority, so much that he completely arrests those whom he interrupts. It's much the same in salvation. How many were going their own way? We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to their own way. We were walking in darkness. We were children of wrath. We were doing what was right in our own eyes until suddenly we were face to face with the risen Christ. When the interruption of salvation happens, it's the most glorious interruption of all. It's the interruption we praise Him for, we give Him glory for, we say, ah, it was that interruption that completely changed my life, that opened my eyes, that showed me that I was a sinner in need of a Savior, and I beheld the only Savior and Lord who could save me, Jesus Christ Himself. And so I turned from my sin and put my faith and trust in Him and in Him alone. I gave Him my all, my everything to Him, because He revealed Himself to me. And let us see what it says here in verse 9. And behold, look at this. Take notice of this. 
Jesus met them. That's the way it always is, isn't it? Jesus met them. Jesus met us. They weren't looking to meet Jesus. No, it's quite the way that it should happen. Jesus found them. Just like he finds all of those who are his. Not one of them is lost. And he says to them, greetings. Literally, that means be joyful. What a greeting that meets them with the side of Jesus risen from the dead. Yes, be joyful indeed. And what a different circumstance now compared to when we last heard this word. The last time we heard this word, greetings, it came in a garden. It came at night. It came with a mob. It came with a traitor. It came out of the mouth of one who would betray his Lord and Master, Judas Iscariot, who said, Greetings, Rabbi. There was no joy in that greeting because it was a greeting of betrayal, a greeting of stabbing the Messiah in the back. This greeting differs in that it is not a greeting of betrayal, but a greeting of faithfulness, a greeting of grace, a greeting of peace to calm their fears. And then, what a great response. That's almost reflexive. Have you ever been to the doctor and had your reflexes checked? You sit on the table there with your legs dangling off the edge. The doctor comes and taps on your knees in just the right spot and your legs kick out. When I was little, I always wanted to make sure that I passed the test, so I just raised my leg a little bit further just to let the doctor know that it was working. I don't know if you can fake a doctor or not. The point of reflexes is, I think, that you don't have to do anything. When the doctor hits the right spot, your leg kicks out automatically without you even really having to think about it. With their eyes beholding the risen Lord, the two women have a reflex response. It's as almost as if they didn't even have to think about it. They do it automatically. They take hold of their Savior's feet and they worship Him. And this outward reflex is an act of faith. To believe means to adore Jesus to recognize him as Lord and to render homage to him, to pay tribute to him as a king. And what they are doing here is in complete contrast to what we see happen at the beginning of the book of Matthew. There, Satan was tempting Jesus and he took Jesus to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in all of their glory. And then do you remember what he said? Satan says to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan's temptation proved that 
He was God's great adversary trying to usurp what was God's alone. That's why Jesus said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, what do we see here? Jesus receives worship, and rightly so. Because he is deity. He is God. If he wasn't, he should have rejected the worship. He should have said what the angel of John said, uh, what the angel said to John in the book of Revelation. When he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. But Jesus receives worship because he is God. Do you have reflexes like this? Reflexes that would, would worship the Savior Jesus Christ. How often our reflexes are selfish. Christian reflexes are selfless. Jesus didn't reject the worship. He received it. And in his presence, there is great rejoicing. Knowing the risen Christ will make you respond in worship and nothing will deter you from worshiping him. Nothing will stop you from lifting high his name. Nothing will stop you from presenting yourself as a living sacrifice to him. Are you worshiping the risen Christ? What is it that might be hindering you? What is it that might be distracting you? What have you built up in your mind that you think is more important than worshiping Him? These women take hold of His feet as a posture of humility and submission to Him as their risen Lord. And what an appropriate place to begin. I wonder at the time of our uh, the beginning of our services, we have that time of preparation of the heart. I wonder if at that time we would go back to that humility and submission. Lord, prepare my heart in humility. I submit myself to you this morning. Jesus goes on to reassure the women of the instruction that had been given to them by the angel. He says again, don't be afraid. Continue on in the mission. Tell, and look at what it says here. Go and tell my brothers. The angel had said, the disciples, but now Jesus changes it to this term of endearment. My brothers are there. They're waiting for me. They need to hear the good news. Go and tell my brothers whom I love. Go and tell them to go to Galilee. And there what? There they will see me. They will see me in this risen state. They will see me in this glory. They will see me and everything will be made new. And I think it's fascinating here, this place where they are to go, this region called Galilee. Why? Why couldn't Jesus have just met them in Jerusalem? Why did they have to take a trip? 
I think it's interesting if we look in the book of Matthew, Jesus was born in Galilee, and Galilee was a despised place. But Jesus came to that place, that despised place, and he shed light, his light, on a despised people. He even first revealed himself as the risen Lord to women who might have been despised, thought less of. But Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. It wasn't to people who thought themselves worthy of his salvation. Even as it says that he went to Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus' mission, his salvation was extending and growing. Such a message is good news for you and for me. You and I are not beyond Christ's salvation. You may be despised, you may be downcast, you may be downtrodden and despicable, but Christ can save you. Christ can raise you from the dead. Cast yourself entirely on the redeeming work of Christ as the only work that you will ever need. Receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life that He alone can give. Turn from your sin. Call out to Him. And He will save you. It's why the very last words of Matthew speak of Christ's great commission to His disciples. Look at these in verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The message of the risen Christ is going out. The message of the risen Christ needs to go out. The message of the risen Christ is the only message that will bring fear with great joy. The message of the risen Christ is the only message that will give you hope. And it's the message of the risen Christ by which you know that the risen Christ will be with you forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Father, I pray that your word would have its way in us today. And that we would be those who are responding rightly to the resurrection. With fear and great joy. With, with worship as you provide great reassurance to our souls. that for those who have trusted in Christ, you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You will never cast us off. And our hope will never be removed. Father, if there is anyone here today who does not know Christ, has not put their faith and trust in Him, Maybe they've even responded 
with fear and trembling, yet there's been no saving faith. I pray that today you would work in their hearts and lives. May they call out to Christ today, knowing that He can and will save them, those who turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in Him. And so, Father, I pray that you would work in all of our hearts today. By your goodness and grace and for your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.